Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Reel's Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Yeah, I am Pete Wright, and I have a pot for sin. What? <laughs> uh, you all, it's always been that way, Pete. Always. <laughs> uh, on today's episode, we have invited writer-producer Rachel Lewis to talk about a movie she likes, Mike Nichols' 1988 film Working Girl, written by Kevin Wade. There isn't any room at the top local girls like us. I'm not giving up. In the land of opportunity. They're not going to give me no shot test. They're going to shoot you. Where dreams are won and lost. Spray me down. Sorry. Well, I can't very well walk around my own party clinging. Someone's about to get what she deserves. I know I'm asking an awful lot, Tess, but I... I don't know what else to do. I need you to take over. Do me a favor, be me. Be my secretary. You do, sir? Thank you, Cynthia. Hold all calls, Miss McGill? Yes, Cynthia, thank you. Can I get you anything, Mr. Trainer? Coffee, tea, me? <laughs> Isn't she right? That'll be all, Cynthia. But how you look. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? 
20th Century Fox presents Harrison Ford. Last night was special. It wasn't so special. I had to carry up three flights of stairs. Sigourney Weaver. This woman is my secretary. She's not. Oh, no? Ask her. Melanie Griffith. How about you? I'm flat broke. I'm crazy about a man that I will probably never see again. Well, besides that... <laughs> In a new film, directed by Mike Nichols. I'm telling you, she's your man. Working Girl. You know, maybe I just don't like you. Me? Nah. <laughs> Hello, Rachel. Hello. Thank you for having me. Wahoo! We are thrilled to have you on board talking uh, to us about this fantastic movie. Thank you so much for uh, for picking it. It's going to be a fun conversation for sure. I can't believe we haven't talked about it. Like, there's been no excuse for us to talk about this movie in 13 years. I know. I know. It's a classic, guys. It's, it's a, a classic. classic. Oh, it it's truly a classic. is. Truly is. Well, before we start talking about that movie, we definitely want to talk about it. But we want to talk to you. First, let's just get a sense as to who you are, your background, your history in the industry, all of that good stuff. So um, how did you like writing, producing? That's kind of uh, your cup of tea. Um, you know, what's how did you get started in the industry? Let's kind of start at the beginning. Sure. Well, um, I went to school for theater at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So, uh-huh. I, theater I, nerds, I, we love them. Theater, yes. <laughs> I started out. I was in theater growing up. I always loved going to theater. Um, growing up in in Montana, there was just so much theater. Um, <laughs> but uh, where, no. where would where would that theater have been? <laughs> <laughs> there was. Listen, I was in little improv troops. It was it was just a budding resource. No, I my family would. My my parents are both from cities, so I would go, we would vacation to cities having grown up in Montana. And, you know, we went to Broadway, we went to Chicago. And on our first trip to Chicago, like in my teens, we went to see Second City in Chicago. And I was sort of blown away with sketch comedy and improv. I'd never really seen that before. And I was like, that's what I want to do. It's so cool. Commentary about politics and being funny and having something to say. So, um... After college, I went to Chicago to do sketch and improv, and I studied at I.O. and Second City and the Annoyance Theater and did all that jazz. And then I came to L.A. about five years after that, and I'd been doing sketch and improv a bunch, and I just sort of continued it here. And I was performing with various troops in Chicago, and um, in one of those troops was a woman named Alex Fox, and she kind of moved to L.A. coincidentally, simultaneously at the same time as myself. And we kept performing together, and then we got opportunities to pitch shows, which I didn't actually think, I didn't understand how that sort of worked. I knew there were shows on television. I was like, I want to be on TV, but I didn't think about who made the shows. I knew there were writers, but even selling the idea of a show was a sort of a new thing for me. And through this sketch and improv scene, people start seeing you and seeing your shows, and you get the opportunity. And so we sort of joined forces and had the opportunity to start pitching and meeting on things and writing things and sort of so that's sort of how my path ended up into writing for television that's crazy <laughs> like <laughs> accidental mean, writing like it's like you stumble you do all this training and then stumble into it right like that's fantastic well yeah because when you're in the sketch and improv scene you write everything that you're in so i i knew i was I sort of became a writer doing that. And you write characters for yourself, you write characters for other people, you write sketches. And it was sort of just a transition from writing past page five. So we started performing, we were writing and doing sketch shows, then we were we like pitched a web series, and we got a web series into like a TV festival. What was the first thing you pitched officially where you said, Oh, my God, I just pitched something? Well, I remember a woman from Cartoon Network came to one of our improv shows, and she then had like a speed dating round for improvisers at that that IO in LA. Um, and she was like, "I'm doing five minute meetings with people that are interested in pitching shows," and we were like, "Oh, we're gonna <laughs> let's do that." <laughs> um, and so. That sounds fun. Yeah, we like kind of did like a meet and greet with her for five minutes. I don't think we pitched in that meeting, but at the time we had done a web series. Oh, wait, so maybe that was before that. Wait, (laughs) I I realized basically you when we we did our first web series, this is what we did a web series called The John and Eddie Show, and it got into the 
LA Independent Television Festival. This is what it is. I'm backtracking. Gosh, it's been a okay. while. Um, it's all right. And I'm actually, the, I actually got a sketch artist who's actually drawing a map and okay, lost. Okay. And it was yeah. at that festival that we started meeting and greeting people. And I was hearing about people pitching and how to pitch a show and all of these things. And we made a connection with a woman there who seemed super cool, who was at Fremantle Media and she was producing comedy. And so we met with her and then she was like, can you bring in three ideas for a show? So that's sort of more called what a soft pitch is. So we kind of came up with three show ideas. And I guess I'd been learning along the way. It wasn't like I just stumbled into it. It was, it was, I was realizing a lot of people in the sketch and improv scene were transitioning into writing and selling shows. And I love television. And so I, with along with my partner, we sort of figured out shows that we would want to create with characters we love. And so our first pitch was with her at Fremantle Media. Um, and we ended up selling a web series to them and doing a web series. In your first pitch, your first soft pitch. Not in that meeting, but from but that, event, it, it kind came of out transitioned. Of yes. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, I guess that's pretty, pretty lucky. <laughs> that's kind of rare, right? That's awesome. Yes, it was pretty cool. and it did. But I, we didn't transition straight into writing for television straight from there. It was a very low-budget web series. The goal was for it to, at the time, they were doing uh, web series shows that they were then going to pitch to networks to do actual television. So it was a web series with a very small budget. And then it was attached to a contract of potentially pitching. And then, of course, by the time the web series was made, most of our contacts at Fremantle were gone and they were only interested in making dramas because they sell better overseas or reality television or game shows. So it was a dead end, but it was a starting place for us. Are people still pitching web series? I feel like streaming kind of killed those. Yeah, I don't think so. I think people make web series or I guess a lot of people call them shorts now as opposed to like a web series. Right. Yeah. But I don't think it's a thing. There was a time there where it was like college humor and all these places and like we're that's having were. were web series. Web series and a lot that's yeah. what people were doing then. I mean Tom Hanks had his own web series. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Was it on I don't I don't know that one. Was it on his fetishism over typewriters? <laughs> right, yeah. That was what was it? It was a, like a, a weird, like uh, dystopian future one or something. It was called like something city. I can't remember. That it's, sounds right. Up, it's Tom almost Hanks impossible Alley. to talk to because well, you know, you partnered with <laughs> Yahoo or or something, yeah, and all that stuff right. just disappeared. Yahoo Weather. So. Anyway, <laughs> that's fantastic. And do you have those two ideas that didn't get picked up? Oh my gosh! Uh, <laughs> left because we'll take them. We'll do it. We'll go ahead and spin those up. Okay, I'll go find them and I'll send them over. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I mean, you've been keeping busy with all sorts of different shows. Uh, I mean, are you show running on anything? You're producing some of the stuff. So I am not show running. Uh, the the thing that's funny in writing a lot. Sometimes your level is it, your level. Like as you move up as a writer, you move up to like producer level. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are full on producing all the time. It's also associated with pay and your level and your experience. Um, so I would say the most producing or um, experience that I had was along with my writing partner in 2019. We were on a show for Apple TV Plus called Helpsters. And um, that was, besides producing our own things early on, that we were able to, they they moved us to New York along with the showrunner and we were running around and involved in all sorts of production from casting to production meetings to being on set producers to post and mixing and everything. And so we were sort of the go-to number twos on that show. And and from there, um, we got a lot of that experience. But we just came off of Raven's Home on Disney Channel with Raven Simone, the sort of reboot of That's So Raven, which is a multicam half-hour sitcom. And on that show, we, I mean, we're at producer level, but we are just more in the writer's room and not doing all, you you do, you dabble a little bit with going to set and, and chiming in on other things, but it's not full on producing. So in like that example, for so like Raven's Home, you're on, you're on that one as a producer. Like and, writer, producer, produ producer is sort of my level as a, as a writer. Sure, as yes. a writer. Yes. Okay. And then how many other writers would you have on the team for a show like that? So that one had a pretty big 
um, room. The biggest room we've ever been in, actually. I, really? I think there were like around 10 entities, but there were three teams. So there might be more like 13 people. Um, so it was a very large room. <laughs> That's funny. It's, it feels very corporate. Where you're, there are 10 entities in the room. 10 entities oh. and three teams. <laughs> and, yes. yes. I threw up in my mouth a little bit just that hearing all the hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> did any did any of the teams contribute actual writing or was it just you? <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, we were basically I'm in a writing team. So we are a team yeah. and we are basically sold as one entity even though we so we when you're in a writing team you split okay. a paycheck and um even though you are technically two people in a room but then when you go and off and write a script you're just it's the two of you so you know there's pros and cons to being in a writing team. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So the danger of the ampersand. Yes, that's what's just going to ask the ampersand question. <laughs> yes. Are you an A-N-D or an ampersand when you're a team? Is that how that works? We are an ampersand. So the ampersand is determined by entity. Is that a fair parallel? Yes. That's like, like I would say entity or slot. Like we could have been filled by us as a team or we could have been filled by just another writer, at producer. A single writer. writer. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, interesting. I learned a whole new word. So there were 10 entities in the room, which was, uh, for you, the bar, the biggest that you had seen. Yeah, for us, we've been on a lot of kids and family shows. And in general, they seem to have smaller rooms than like a straight up network show. Uh, I don't mean to dig into too many of the peculiarities, the specificities of these specific shows, but that was the Raven's Home show, right, that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. How does that compare to a show like Helpsters? Like that's a Sesame Street joint, right? Yeah. So for Helpsters, it was this high, it was an Apple TV plus show, but produced by Sesame Workshop. And it was definitely for a younger audience, but it was still a comedy. And um, so we shot 11 minute episodes that we would then pair into half hours. So we did 26 half hours. So 52 11 minute episodes. So it was kind of crazy. Oof. It was a wow, lot. A lot. Um, so yeah. the story, you know, story structure is different, but then we've worked on many a half half hour like bizarre vark on disney um and some other shows there's another disney show coming out called pretty freaking scary a lot of multi-cam sitcoms so the the helpsters the interesting element to that was shooting with puppets which is um time consuming but awesome and really magical and fulfilling um and we shot that as a hybrid we would be in the studio some days and then we would shoot all over new york and how many writers how many entities were involved on that show like shooting so many segments. I have to imagine it's another significant writer's room. It was not very big. We started wow. with, I think like it was maybe five entities. We started in LA and then before it was greenlit and then it was kind of a fast green light. And then just some of us went to New York and we added a couple more New York writers. I still only think it was like five. I keep saying entities. There were, there was another team besides us. So it was like two teams. Gotcha. That's crazy really interesting Mm -hmm. and that one was a like i've wild hours just crazy crazy long hours um (laughs) to get it done yeah these kids shows they'll kill you yeah (laughs) and then they watch one story in 11 minutes and they're done and you're like kids you're gonna watch it again you might watch that seven times oh they all all they want to do is watch it again they love (laughs) to watch things over and over so it works out (laughs) that is very true yeah yeah ask any parent of a young child it's like i have just watched moana for the 20th time (laughs) lord child my kingdom for 52 different 11 minute segments yeah exactly yeah well let's talk a little bit about uh the world of the writers guild right now and the strike uh you know we we definitely wanted to kind of have this conversation with you uh, as somebody who's working the lines and is like very involved in the strike i guess first just tell us kind of like your involvement kind of like your level of and how you're helping uh, with the strike and then let's just talk a little bit like really the strike what is it all about so that the people out there who aren't working in the industry kind of have a better sense as to like what uh, the writers are are working toward Sure. Well, I am both a WGA captain and a lot coordinator at Amazon Studios in Culver City. So I became a WGA captain during our agency campaign in 2017, which I don't know if you're aware of. We had a a conflict with our agents and we had, you know, we kind of renewed our contract with them and we ultimately won a better contract with them. We had to fire them and then we were slowly rehiring them. So that's sort of how I became involved as a captain. What is it? What is the function of captain for those who don't know? 
So like I was on a show, Bizarre Vark at Disney, and you would have a captain in your room. It used to be where you would just have a captain for every show and people would be on shows for so long that they would just get captain from their writer's room. But now because they're, and I'll explain what a captain is, but now because there's so many shows and people jump from show to show and there's like one or two seasons of shows, the guild just has captains and then you're a I've sort of collected people from shows I've been on, but then I've also gotten assigned more people. So basically, it's just to disseminate information. So you're sort of a conduit between the the leadership and the guild and your members. So I go to captain's meetings and get important information that, that I disseminate to my team. Um, and then if they have any questions or feedback, I can try and get that back to the guild and so forth so that we're all in the know about what's happening. And I think this captain system is really great and it's keeping keeps our guild informed. And that's why I think we're so united and motivated. So, you know, in between um, different contracts, as we were gearing up for the 2020 contract negotiation with the AMPTP, which is the studios, which is the contract negotiation that we're in now, which is up every three years. So basically, we as writers have to enter in a new agreement with studios like Fox, NBC Universal, Warner Brothers, Amazon, Apple, people who agree to a guild contract if they want WGA writers. And every three years, that is up and we ask for more terms and demands or we agree on something so that we can all work together. And we were gearing up for that in 2020, but then a little thing called COVID hit. So we stopped working anyway, and we just had to hold on to the gains that we could, which meant that now there's quite a bit that basically is going on. So much has changed in our industry from the beginning of streaming, which is sort of what happened in the last strike, which is before I got to LA in the 2007-2008 strike. And the big takeaway from that strike was jurisdiction over the internet. This new little thing called streaming, which at the time they were calling new media. Like nobody thought it was going to make a splash. <laughs> you know, who knows what's going to do? It's just going to be this sort of like indie thing and whatever. So they kind of negotiated different rates because they were this new thing. But we were able to gain jurisdiction over the internet, meaning that now if you are in a streaming service and you have have to use guild writers. But as things have progressed and we've seen these are becoming mammoth country like companies and corporations that are making billions of dollars and they're basically taking over it's like 50% of the programming. I mean I've worked on things at HBO Max, at Apple, Disney Channel that then goes to Disney Plus. It's basically in every writer's sphere unless you're on like Law and Order SVU basically on NBC which is a more classic broadcast model. So in terms of what we're asking for and striking for is things have just changed where all of a sudden we writers, our wages are going down about 23% and these corporations are making billions and billions of dollars every year. And they're recording and reporting these massive earnings and, and projections to their stockholders, but then also crying poor to all of us. So basically, we're on the picket lines. We're striking for fair and equitable wages. We went to them with our, quote unquote, pattern of demands. And there was a period of negotiation with our top board members and leaders. And ultimately, they didn't respond to a lot of our proposals. And we're the people who are contributing to the profitability of their companies. And some CEOs are making millions and millions of dollars. David Zaslav, who just spoke at Boston University, who was booed by their students, he's made something around $246 million in the last year. And the total that the Guild is asking for is around, I think it's like 400, around $400 million for a year total for around 12,000 people. So just put that into perspective. Yeah, it's absurd. It's absurd. It is. Can you, can you explain how uh, the residual system works in streaming as as in contrast to traditional terrestrial media? Yeah. I mean, I wish I could in detail. I'm a little unclear. I was never... I mean, I'm I'm on the picket lines with people who like wrote on Frasier for six years and they have so much more money. Basically, back <laughs> in the day, if you have... If you were on a show like Friends or Frasier, you are on the show and then they run for so many years and then they rerun them and then they're syndicated and you get m money every single time. And I'm not sure how it's been figured out, but the streaming companies keep all of their data secret. So they're 
they then can not say to us how many people are seeing it or where it's being viewed. For example, the Apple show I wrote on is airing in 100 countries in 40 languages. And I'm not really receiving any money off of that, even though I worked on that show for a year of my life and contributed so many ideas, and they will continue to make money off of it for years and years and years in their library. I'm on a Disney Channel show now that when it airs on Disney Channel, I still get a decent amount of residuals. But then when it moves to Disney+, Plus, it completely drops off. And it's just a different structure. And it's something, one of the things that we're trying to fix and just, again, make fair to the people who are creating the content. We just want a small piece of the pie. Are they uh, trying to get the, like these streaming services to actually open up that information? Is that part of the contract? I don't know if it's specifically in the contract. I'm not as I was not on the negotiating committee, so I'm not as aware, but I know that that is one of the things that they have been asking for that they, I don't think will ever give up. And so because they don't seem to ever want to give it up, we have to create a different structure because that is like their data is like their most, you know, prized possession. And then there's other things like, I didn't even know that this strike was going to be about AI. I, it was not on right. my radar at all. I don't think it was on the negotiating committee's radar. It's just one point of our deal of just like, hey, this is sort of how we think we should deal with AI. And because of their response or lack of response where they wouldn't even talk about it, it's kind of a tell, oh, this is something that they want to be using. This needs to be pushed. It really kind of came out of nowhere just in the last couple of months. Suddenly, like everybody's talking about AI. So, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's probably a good time to get that sorted out as well. Yeah, because what's happening a lot of the time right now in, the, in um, shows is you have these like eight episode shows when you used to have like 22 episodes, like a se- season of Friends would be like 22 episodes. And then you have these cool hip streaming shows that I love, like, let's say Succession or Hacks, and they're like eight to 10 episodes. And so they're just all these smaller orders. And what they're trying to do is just have like a showrunner and then just a few people under them. And it just... The showrunner then is completely overworked. They have these things called mini rooms where they basically try and get you to break the entire season in a few weeks, and then they dismiss all the writers to do freelance. So kind of trying to turn us into gig economy workers, day players. And in the future, there is they're, they're thinking, maybe these studios, they've talked about it, where they use AI to generate a bunch of ideas and then make an experienced showrunner go and fix it. So instead of Oof. building a level of of staff writers who are moving up in the ranks, who are learning what it is to make television, you just have a few showrunners that know how to do it and then a bunch of computers, which is not the creative process. And also AI itself is, I don't know what the rules are with copyright because it's just using other artists to create other art. Which which remains to be litigated, right? That needs Correct. to be pushed into the courts so we can figure it out. Like there's, I, I think that the... the, the you know, what we're hearing, and this this came out some months ago when, again, the aforementioned Zaslav came in and started just slashing a lot of library content that people thought was completely sacred. And then you get this conversation about how people are paid in residuals. And Zaslav, the, the Zaslav story came out that is happening in all the streaming services where you pay once as a streaming service for a show that you want to keep in your library for the next end period. Maybe it's yearly. And then that's the one time that you pay for that show, and it doesn't matter how many countries you stream it in, it's yours for your library, and if you don't want to pay that residual again, you axe the show. This is has sort of unveiled so many pain points for creators, writers, showrunners who spent a lot of their time and, and blood and sweat on these shows, and they cannot be found anymore. These shows are suddenly gone. There was never a DVD, never a Blu-ray deal, and now the shows don't exist in streaming. And so that that feels like another issue. Uh, you know, if if the shows are created, what happens to them and how do writers continue to get paid, you, you know, uh, for library content? Yeah, and also for their credits, like um, yeah. people just starting out and a lot of these shows on HBO Max that are now gone, those were their first credits. And not just writers, but set designers, costume people. It's their calling card for their next job, but there's no way to see them. And the reason they're cutting them is because they want to report losses so that then they, they can have more growth. 
I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'm explaining exactly, but if they have losses, then they have larger growth that they can then report back to their stockholders. And, and they want their most profitable, you know, shows to constantly be in that top tier rotation. Yeah, I, right, I mean, right. it's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's very frustrating. So, yeah. Well, we certainly applaud you for being out there and support you and are thrilled to uh, have a chance to chat with you about it a little bit here on the show. Thank you. Sorry if I was long-winded. There's, there's no. a, these are complicated issues, yeah, but yeah. all, I think of the main takeaway for the writers is that we just want to be paid fair and equitably for our for our work, and that we just want to be respected as creatives. And we have been at the table. It's and now our response is we had no choice but to strike. We did not want to, but we are walking the line because we know what we deserve. Well, uh, you know, we see just uh, in terms of our audience, like. We are people who are fans of these creative projects, and we need to understand these issues. Like, we as fans need to understand these issues. And so that's, uh, you know, huge thanks for for taking a few minutes to explain it. You got it. Should we talk about a movie, though? Oh, yes. Yes, let's shift our conversation to, uh, to Working Girl, Mike Nichols' film from 1988. This was one of the many choices that you had picked. What is it about this particular film that you love so much? Very nostalgic. I feel like I watched this when I was younger. Like my mom showed it to me or something. And she was just like, this is a great movie. Um, I love the themes, even though some of it is dated, obviously. It's, you know, strong female empowerment. It is um, getting what's yours. It's sort of very uh, thematic to what I'm dealing with now. Sure. It's being yeah. credited for your work. <laughs> Um, I don't know if Sigourney Weaver is the AMPTP or and the studios or what, but or if Trask Industries is. Yeah, but right. I, it's so eighties. I'm obsessed with like Joan Cusack, the hair and the makeup. I'm obsessed oh, with Carly Simon's God. theme song. I'm obsessed with the high tops. I'm obsessed with the hair. So I think when I watched it when I was a kid, I don't. I don't know if I watched it like when it came out or was like a little later, but it was like my mom showed it to me and I was just like, this is ridiculous. And um, I just think they're all so great. Also in the rewatch that I rewatched it this weekend, even though I've seen it so many times and I was watching it with my husband and I was like saying all the lines before they said them. Um, <laughs> I bet he loves that. Yeah. Oh, he did. <laughs> like there's just so many classic lines in it. And also so many actors that you're like, oh my gosh, oh my there's God, Alec right? Baldwin, there's Kevin Spacey, there's Ricky Lake for like two seconds. Dude, right. Uh, so that Zach was Grenier was in it. I just, I just watched Devs. And I was, and you know, he's a major part in that. I'm like, hey, that was him. He just went by real quick. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. <laughs> the Kevin Spacey casting was on the nose. <laughs> bit, yeah. I mean, can we just say that out loud? Like <laughs> on the nose. That was yeah. amazing. Flashback. It was very funny. The other yeah. thing, you guys, this movie, I have not seen it so many times. Like I saw it when it came out and probably saw it a couple of times. Uh, I, I found my, I, I probably owned it. I think it was on my shelf in college, but I didn't put it on all that much. And this is a much better movie than I even, than I remembered it to be. Like, I was kind of a fan, but I always thought, like, if I watch it again, am I going to be annoyed by Melanie Griffith? Like, if, is there something, like, that's going <laughs> to take, turn, turn me the wrong way? And, and it's totally not. This is a really solid movie. Like, it was entertaining and flew by. She's great. Harrison Ford is great. Yeah. There's a couple of things where I'm like, the, my one, like, what? Is when she's vacuuming to clean up to get ready for Sigourney yeah. Weaver to come back. She's like, <laughs> Yeah. And I was just like, what okay. is that? And that was completely yeah. unnecessary. So that was sort of like a flag. Um, but it does have it themes of, you know, sexism in the workplace, also classism. Um, and so I and I love a story with the underdog. You want the underdog to win. And he does. And the showdown, right? Like the sh the showdown at the end is is really satisfying. Like mm -hmm. it's enormously satisfying. Well, because the showdown at the end isn't just like a, a typical showdown. Like right. it, they very well could have had a showdown in that conference room when Sigourney Weaver walks in. But Melanie, or, or, you know, her character, she recognizes that she's been called out, and she she leaves. And then then we have that fantastic showdown that kind of takes place 
uh, later in the other elevators. And it's just, it played so well. You brought up Melanie Griffith, Pete, and just the fact that her performance, I mean, it was such a surprise for me as well, watching her in this role where she really owned the part. And like in that scene, in that elevator, when she's talking to Philip Bosco, and she's explaining like, this is how I put all these pieces together to come up with this idea. And like, it's so logical, and it makes sense to us, it makes sense to him. And then to see him turn that around, when he gets out of the elevator and, and Sigourney Weaver, and he asks her the same question, and she just she that's that's all he needed to know that she was lying this whole time. And it just it played so well. And Mel- Melanie Griffith, I, I know she was dealing with her own issues at the time of the production with her uh, her um, cocaine habits and stuff. But I, I wouldn't know watching the movie like she plays so uh, perfectly for this character. And that scene right there just totally sold me on her. Yeah, and um, they use the best insult ever, which is bony ass. Um, <laughs> this was like, oh yeah, I was, at the end she calls, "Get your bony ass," and he's like, "How did yeah. you put it? Your bony ass?" Like, ooh, back in the, that must have been such a hit. I was yeah. like, "Get her, get her, call her a bony ass." Yeah. You know the the thing I was reflecting on at the at the end is she's making her case and and they're talking about all these mergers and acquisitions and they're you know Trask uh, you know Philip Bosco's character is such a likable guy and he becomes like the the affable sort of ally to the protagonist uh, and what we're talking about and celebrating this huge win is essentially exactly the stuff that we are rallying against in Wall Street. Right. Like buying this radio from this kind of radio network from this kindly southern guy who just wants to retire. And what will probably happen is this giant Trask Industries will come in and tear it apart. Like we've seen how that movie ends. And yet this movie is written in a way that gives us all the good feelings about mergers and acquisitions and like capital. And the the 80s were a weird time. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, because the merger of uh, Warner Brothers Discovery and HBO, like, that tore a lot of things apart. And just like you were saying, it took a bunch of things off of the network. So you're right. I realized we were we're cheering for a bad thing. (laughs) We're cheering for a bad thing, and it feels so good. But I was cheering for Melanie Griffith. So Yes, uh, but it was her idea. She is the architect of destruction in this movie. This this is a year after Wall Street. Like, this is in everybody's minds. It's all about, like, (laughs) that's how everybody was thinking. It was, you know, greed is good. It's all, it's all good. Green is good. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, talking about the things that um, that fit in the era and things that that definitely feel or like it's like makes it feel a little dated and stuff. There was also her relationship that she had with Alec Baldwin as her boyfriend, and uh, you know she catches him sleeping with uh, somebody else from the neighborhood, and that was an element that also I'm like this this feels a little dated too. Like even her best friend, you know, Joan Cusack is just like he's just so sad. Can you just talk to him and stuff? <laughs> I'm like, oh come I on, it's like ridiculous. God. Like why would everyone sort of just like just get back with him? It'll be fine. Again, yes, it's like no. You would be done with him. Um, but that's the whole, that's the other side of like, she should just get married. She should just be content with her life and she shouldn't want more. She shouldn't want to be going to night school. She shouldn't want to be learning. She shouldn't want to be growing. Um, so I do think it was like a certain wave of feminism. I think obviously there is a more, uh, like, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? The, like an evolve. There's a, a better evolved feminism, but that was feminism at that time. I feel like. Yeah, and to your point, that like that exactly does what uh, in in that era what we wanted to see, like this empowered woman who is a secretary. And I think that it's it's really more about people who are in these roles. And she's incredibly smart. She has these ideas. She can do all of this stuff that Sigourney Weaver's character could do, but she's coming at it from the position of a secretary, and no one is going to take her seriously. And that's really kind of like part of the frustration with with characters who are in stories like this is just like, I can get there, but no one will ever see me as that because I am pigeonholed in this particular role. And I think there's a, a very valid point there. I mean, who is just telling me about the story about was it like Joshua Bell had um, he's a you know famous violinist and he had gone down to the subway stations in New York 
and was just playing his violin down there. And it was like, I don't know, some million dollar violin or something. And he was just playing down there. And, you know, people were walking by and giving him, you know, tips here and there and stuff. And he made, I don't know, like, you know, a hundred bucks or something. And then like the very next day he was performing on some big hall and, you know, where tickets were hundreds of dollars. And it was just to kind of prove a point that um, it you can have those brilliant people, but no one is going to look at that person in the subway as that person who you're going to pay hundreds of dollars to go watch. And it's just, it, there's this interesting classist system where people just can't get out of that. And to see how, how Tess figures out how to kind of work that system so that she can get out of it. I think that's what makes this film stand out. That's the context is everything bit. And I think the film, there are, there are a couple of beats in the film that I think really celebrate it for me. And, and they're all related to Tess accidentally or mistakenly interpreting these the social situation uh as she's the secretary and you know that beat where she stands up he says coffee and she says sure and stands up and then turns immediately around and sits down again it's fantastic and the hero moment at the end when she gets to have the conversation with her new assistant and they establish their boundaries and she sits down at the assistant's desk and has to be told she has an office is glorious. It is one of my central memories of this movie, and it is so perfectly written. Um, you know, will you can I, I prefer assistant. Uh, only get me coffee when you're getting you're getting it for stuff yourself. for yourself, yep. and we'll figure the rest out uh, as we go. I know that mo- moment always makes me cry. I cried yeah. when I watched again. My yeah. husband was like, "What are you doing?" Um, but it just <laughs> it gets me because I'm just like she did it and. You know, I think you can relate to that in all themes. I think like thinking back, moving to L.A. and waiting tables and all I wanted to do was like be an artist that got paid a creative for my, you know, for for my talents. And and instead, you're just like waiting tables and you just want to be seen and heard and in the game. And I understand instead you are fungible, right? Yes. You just it could be anyone. Yeah. Doing and, that job. and it's like that. I, I can completely relate to that feeling. And also it is interesting because we open the movie with these like douchebag guys not taking her seriously. And then she gets this opportunity to work under this woman who she seems like handle the men in a certain way. Cause they're douchebags to her, but she's able to handle them with her, you know, with her way and her class and her style. But then this woman is terrible to her. So it also represents how women, I, I, I'm so happy. And I think that we have evolved in that way. But how, you know, when you're also in the system, women then were taught to cut each other down as well, as opposed to lift each other up. And I'm hoping Tess is part of the new, new class of women who will be lifting up her assistant. Um, just as I think I am in an age now where we women lift each other up as opposed to participate in the patriarchy where women had to compete with each other like that. So it also had that element to it. Obviously the, the one is a very white movie there. We're missing uh, the, the POV of people of color there. I think there were like two black people and they were like, you know, waiters. Uh, So I always, I always notice that now in present, in films, obviously, but I still want to enjoy and appreciate the movie for the eighties, but also acknowledge that, that we are talking about feminism and we are talking about the patriarchy but, and classism, but we are leaving out a whole other demographic of people. But I appreciate what we uh, are discussing as well. Yeah. Well, it's that that context is everything. Point exactly. is really important because like I watched this, you know, my daughter was watching it over my shoulder and she's 20. And, you know, it it's hard to have these kinds of conversations with her because she knows nothing other than what she has now. And uh, like looking back at this still looks ridiculous, even as progressive as the story the movie is trying to tell about this character who is enforcing change in her own way. It looks kind of ridiculous. Yes, that she exactly. needs to have that cof- the coffee conversations. Well, first, she has I'm to sorry. get past the hair. That's, that's going to be a hard that for, for any no, modern yes. <laughs> child to get past. Right. Like, wait, people actually wanted to wear their hair like that? <laughs> They're I mean, not going to some sort of an event. It's so and the and the eye makeup, but again, that's why oh, I think wow. I liked it so much when I was younger because oh, I would just be yeah. playing with my makeup. I'd be playing with hairspray, um, and also, I mean, we haven't even talked. I think Harrison Ford in this movie is just so funny and likable, and I love the scene where he changes his shirt in front of all the women, and then they all <laughs> like scream and clap. It's just so hilarious and delightful, um, and. 
Yeah, I just think the whole cast all around. I think, wasn't Sigourney Weaver, she was like nominated for an Oscar oh, yeah. for this. Did she win? I don't remember. She was not uh, because uh, she was, well, she was up against Joan Cusack. They were both nominated. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, it, there's always that talk. Well, then they canceled each other out. Who knows if that really happened? But Gina Davis ended up winning for The Accidental Tourist. Oh, okay. Um, another great performance. Yes. But, um, yeah, it's, I, I with uh, Joan Cusack in here, um, I can imagine it's a little more difficult with the two of them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the casting is but, fantastic. Yeah. And Harrison Ford, I mean, this is an era, I, I think, let's see, this would be right before uh, Indiana Jones 3. And so it's definitely kind of, uh, he's still doing those films. Um, and then he's doing, I'm just looking right now, like The Mosquito Coast and Frantic came out right before this. And so, yeah, it's kind of that period where he's doing, you know, some more, uh, I mean, he's not quite entered into the uh, Jack Ryan era of his career or the, you know, the presidential stuff that he'll be doing later. But still, I think he's doing some more complex roles. And uh, this seems like I want to have some fun. And that's what I love about Harrison Ford here is uh, sometimes with all these other films, you kind of forget that he likes to have fun in movies, too. Yeah. And he clearly is just having a great time here. My yeah, favorite sure. scene with him or sort of shot on him is when they go and crash the wedding and he like downs an entire like tropical drink <laughs> in like one fell swoop and then he puts it down and then he grabs another one. It's just a it just great starts, comedic yeah. like moment for him. It was so funny. Yeah. That whole bit was funny because yeah. he clearly was just like, this is the biggest mistake of my career. I should not be here. But she's. I can't stop because of her. And like, I don't know, just something about the way that he played that. Like, it was just so fun to watch him so uncomfortable through that whole thing. Yeah. And when he goes into the woman's bathroom and then he's just like, it's spectacular. It's this. And then he goes, <laughs> and then he pops his finger <laughs> in and out of his, like, he's like, wonderful, excellent, perfect, beautiful. <laughs> and then he just pops his finger in. And I was like, who told him to do that? Who told him to do that? Was that scripted? I mean... I should say, it, as a writer, of course it was scripted. Of course um, it was scripted, right, right, right. Yeah. but it was also brilliant. <laughs> it was, it was. Do you know much about the writer of this? Um, it was uh, Kevin Wade had written, and I guess it was his first script that he had produced. And I know he's super busy now with, um, what's the show that he's been doing? Um, Blue Bloods. Oh. Yeah, he's the showrunner on Blue Bloods now, but... Um, yeah, I, I looking at, through his career, it's not a lot of films, but I don't but know. The just, films that he did, well, this one, <laughs> his top well, four are interesting. It's definitely an interesting set. I mean, you know, starting with this and then True Colors, Mr. Baseball Jr., Meet Joe Black, Made in Manhattan, and then he did seven episodes of Cashmere Mafia and now Blue Bloods since 2011. So interesting. What an interest. I love Made in Manhattan. I love a J-Lo rom-com. Um, yeah. With Ray Fiennes, too. I mean, yeah. Who, uh, yeah. 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 It's it's an interesting career. But this one, I thought it was interesting. Like, he he said he got the idea uh, walking around New York and seeing all these uh, women dressed in their business outfits, but wearing uh, sneakers that yeah. they and then carrying their high heels and just that visual and that's what i love about the work of writers like it can be just a little visual like that that like triggers an entire idea yeah i mean and and you sort of get that and i i love mike nichols obviously and i'm sure he had a lot to do with the film i i have not read his book or but we were talking about working girl in the writer's room and someone in my writer's room was saying how the end was actually supposed to be a downer. I did not read it this way, but when they do the shot where she's in the office and then you pull out and you see everybody in their offices, it's supposed to just show, well, like, did she win? Because now she's just in the cog. She's in the machine of the mouse going to the office in the corporate thing. And she's just in this machine that there was something supposed to be more of a downer about it, even though it's hard to be a downer when Carly Simon is playing. She's like, yeah, right. Simon's going bananas. Run. But like, there <laughs> right? is some, he was saying that in his book, he was saying something. I have not read it, but it was interesting because we were just talking about this movie in the writer's room and like, it was supposed to be a different message potentially at the end than I think I took away from it i can see that mm -hmm. yeah. but at the same time like i just felt like the there was so much positive energy at the end that i i like i just couldn't see them wanting to actually show that because of that positive vibe that they had but i mean put some different music there or yeah. something else like it could suddenly go oh 
wow, she's just now she's just nothing but a little cog in the machine. But again, but, yeah. you put different music there. You have Wall Street. Like, that's why the, this, the tone of the rest of this movie doesn't lead to a downer of an ending. I'm with you. I can totally see it if you pull it back and it's suddenly like Pink Floyd money or something, you know, and uh, then <laughs> then it's a different movie. Uh, but but I also don't want to to sort of artificially judge the character for achieving what she wanted. Right. Like, this was her goal. So how can that not be? How can I not celebrate that as a success for her? I agree. I think it as a success. And that song, I mean, the song, oh they play God. it so much in the movie. So and much. It's so perfect. And I, I don't know. I love it. It's such a, I think it's a pretty great movie. And it's always on my list. That song is so anthemic, and it just like you can it, like I ended up listening to it. Like I've listened since we picked this movie, I've been listening to it. Like my wife, I was like <laughs> singing it all the time, and my wife is just finally like, "Can you just stop with that?" And so it, because it's such a good song, and it, it like once it gets into your head, it's just I don't know. There's something about it that just plays so well, and it's it is such an uplifting, positive song that yeah, I mean, it, it, there's clear reason why Carly Simon ended up uh, taking home her Oscar for that song because it's just it is so good and it works so well in context of the film and the message that it's trying to convey yeah it's one of those songs that you like remember it's like if you hear that song you're like working girl I mean it's working girl so specific but I just have to ask what did what did it what did it win against like is there any memory for its competition? Oh yes. Do you want to know? I have it all. I want to know. I actually went and listened to all of I'm them. I'm curious. Uh, well, one of th- I want to know. There's there's one that is a song to a movie that I is very near and dear to my heart. I absolutely love it. It's a movie called Baghdad Cafe, which is kind of a very small movie not a lot of people remember, but I love that movie. Definitely recommend checking it out. But there's a song from that um called Calling You that um I don't know. It's it's one that I I also love the song, but it's I know it's it's one of those ones that I I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with. The other one that probably people are more familiar with is from Buster, and it's the song Two Hearts" by Phil Collins. So those were the three. It was just three songs oh, that year. Oh well, I can see Carly winning, but uh, Two Hearts" Phil Collins seems yeah, it's of a very catchy, too. poppy song. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Have you watched the music video? Video <laughs> isn't it just Carly Simon on? She's on the boat with the with the on the ferry with the wind blowing through her hair. Well, and all the women like this was that era where you've got like all the women with the big hair. You've got Melanie Griffith and Joan Cusack there. They're all like singing with her and doing that thing. And I was just like, that's very funny. It's very, very of its time. <laughs> Andy, there are different iterations of this movie. They've been it's been made, rebooted, repackaged. What what do I should I is there more I have to watch? As soon as this movie was such a huge success, like the, the I think it was almost like the following year, they ended up making a TV show um, that came out in 1990. So I guess a couple years later. But yeah, Sandra Bullock played Tess McGill. And that one. Oh, I can see that. Actually. Oh, yeah, totally. totally. It only lasted 12 episodes. So it didn't quite have the success that the film did. Uh, then on Broadway, they uh, ended up making a musical or starting a musical as of 2017. Cindy Lauper was actually going to do all the music. Something in the uh, process of Disney purchasing Fox um, put the kibosh on the whole thing, and it seems to have kind of fizzled. I don't know um, if it's something that is still in consideration or if it's totally died. Last but not least, over in Hulu, uh, they have been trying to do a reboot over there with um, Selena Gomez uh, producing it. And so I don't know if it's still happening, but uh, theoretically, we may see a revisioning of this story at some point. How old is Selena Gomez? Could she play it? I don't think she would play it, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, she's 30, so I don't know why she couldn't. She's 30. Yeah, she could. You could. There's some, for some reason, I feel like I've been watching Selena Gomez for so long with my kids that, uh, yeah, that'd be interesting. I could totally see her working that. Well, yeah. anyhow, we've already talked a little bit about some of the awards, but uh, how did, did it clean up anywhere else? 
It did well for itself. Nine wins, 17 other nominations. Uh, we were talking about the Oscars uh, with Rachel. Melanie Griffith was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Jodie Foster in The Accused. And I mentioned that uh, Joan Cusack and Sigourney Weaver have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but both lost to Gina Davis in The Accidental Tourist. Mike Nichols was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Barry Levinson for Rain Man. As we said, uh, Carly Simon's song, Let the River Run, did win the original song Oscar. Last but not least, it was nominated for Best Picture, but lost to Rain Man. Over at the Golden Globes, Mike Nichols lost Best Director to Clint Eastwood for Bird. The movie won Best Motion Picture Comedy or Musical. The song actually tied in the Golden Globes with uh, the song Two Hearts from Buster. And Melanie Griffith won Best Performance by an Actress in a Comedy or Musical, and Sigourney Weaver won Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role. Kevin Wade did get nominated for Best Screenplay here, but lost to Naomi Foner for Running on Empty, and he was nominated at the WGA Awards, but lost to Ron Shelton for Bull Durham. Oh, Bull Durham. Man, there were... Bad. Good era. What Lots of com- good films. What an era, yeah, right? Well, how to do in the box office? Nichols uh, had a great budget as 28 million dollars to make this movie or almost 72 million in today's dollars which i don't know seems high for the type of film seems high yeah i don't know if it's the big names i'm not really sure uh the movie had a holiday release december 23rd 1988 opposite the release of hellbound hellraiser 2 and the limited releases of beaches dangerous liaisons the accidental tourist and talk radio this opened in fourth place behind twins rain man and the naked gun uh, it was never able to get higher than fourth place, but it did stay in the top 10 for 10 weeks, going on to earn $63.8 million domestically and $39.2 million internationally for a total gross of $264.6 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finishment of $1.7 million. Certainly a success for everybody involved. I love a strong female film. Granted, it's not written by a woman, which I'm a pro. I'm not (laughs) mad at it, but eventually now these stories also get to be told, written, and directed by women, but um, I'm still enjoying (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And if, if we had a, a strong woman writing this and directing this, uh, I guarantee we would not have a shot of Melanie Griffith in her panties doing the, uh, vacuuming her. Exactly. <laughs> no, we would not. Because <laughs> I was like, well, really? Well, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a tell that a yeah. man wrote and directed this. But again, yeah. yes. It's a weird, t- like the other scene where she's putting on her like birthday present or Christmas present, whatever it was. And yes. he, he, Alec Baldwin's just laying in bed doing nothing. And she's like clap, doing buckles and straps and stuff on her, all her, her underwear. And she's, and she's calls him out, right? She calls him out and says, it'd be yeah. sure be nice if yeah. I could get a present that I could wear outside. I thought that scene had a good payoff because of that line. Like, you know, I don't like these kinky, Sexy outfits are a real pain in my ass. Yeah. The, just buy the me, payoff. doesn't he say, just buy me a sweater? You can yeah, buy me a sweater. Yeah, or scarf, <laughs> sweater, scarf yeah. sweater. I, I, I feel like it would have been maybe a better payoff if she hadn't, like, had to try it on in the film, right? Like, that's the, that's the next level of payoff yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for this and maybe buy me a sweater and not actually try it on. I don't know. That, it's dated. It is what it is. But it's, <laughs> it's still a great movie. Well, Rachel... Thank you so much for bringing this movie to us to talk about on the show. We really appreciate it. It's a fantastic pick. You're so welcome. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it on the rewatch. And uh, and also, thank you for having me and let me talk about the strike and the strike issues. So, Well, we certainly appreciate that. And we know that uh, those uh, who are listening to the show will appreciate the information as well. And uh, good luck out there. Uh, we're all supporting you. And uh, I guess that's it for this episode, everybody. We will be back Uh, with another guest down the road. But uh, for now, thank you so much for joining us today. For everyone else out there, we hope you like the show and certainly hope that you like the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. The Next Reel Presents Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chunk Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows rating and reviews, we always appreciate that if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. 
If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on the Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. Today. 